Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Ethics for a Changing World. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Darshan Kulkarni, a lawyer focused on the life sciences industry and the health industry. We're going to be talking about how new technologies are being applied in healthcare. That's particularly the metaverse, which has huge implications for our healthcare and also our privacy. And then we go on to talk about monopolies in tech and healthcare. We go on to talk about genetic manipulation and about what free choice means in society. So we cover a lot of ground. This episode is a slightly different format from our usual episodes. So be sure to send us a message on Twitter at Ethics Tech Pod or to leave us a review to let us know what you think of it. Without further ado, on with the show. Darshan, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. So uh, just to introduce you a bit to our listeners, Darshan is a lawyer, a trained pharmacist, and he advises people on FDA-regulated products. So FDA is the Food and Drug Administration in the US. So Darshan, why don't you start by telling us a little bit more about what you've been up to? Um, So Patty, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, I hope you can hear me. I hope your listeners can hear me. Um, I'm a food and drug lawyer. Uh, and I basically work with companies that are either bringing or helping bring life-saving products to market. And then I also am a I'm, vis- I'm visiting professor at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, which was actually where I went to pharmacy school. Um, it's the first college of pharmacy in I believe it's called the Western Hemisphere. I didn't know you can ha- you can split hemispheres left and right, but uh, in the Western Hemisphere, I also adjunct professor at University where I'm teaching food and drug law. I am also a little bit of an entrepreneur, but uh, in terms of what I do in food and drug law, I help uh, companies known as, uh, well, I help pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies. I have clients who are lawyers who need, who have their own clients who are pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies. I also help companies that help pharmaceutical companies or medical device companies, companies like what are called CROs, clinical research organizations, ad agencies. Uh, which which is very, very odd on your side of the pond because you don't typically think of ad agencies having the input that they do as they do in the US. So promotional compliance is a huge issue that I help with. And and I help um, address or at least raise issues associated with privacy compliance. That becomes a huge issue um, in the life sciences. I help uh, medical affairs, which is really the scientific division of pharmaceutical companies and the idea is they aren't allowed by law to be promotional in nature. So the implications that, that come out of that. Um, so th- that's, that's some of the stuff that keeps me busy. I, I work with clinical trial sites uh, and clinical research organizations as well. That sounds really interesting and I'm really interested for this conversation because a lot of our guests are academics and you come from this from a slightly different perspective so I'm really excited for this. So the introductory question which is just going to get us into all the good stuff about technology and its challenges is as someone who works with regulation stuff, all the healthcare stuff, I'm going to use the word stuff a lot, what worries you in terms of new technologies? What what keeps you up at night? Um, I, I think there's loads that's, that keeps me up at night. Uh, uh, many of which is created by design, many of which is um, a unforeseen consequence of, 
of the way things are. And sometimes you you just sort of do things in a way that um, is intended to be compliant. Um, and and you, you, you accept the rules as they are and not the way you want to be. But I mean, some things that that really speak to me is the issue of privacy. Uh, so the idea that um, a lot of our data is being mined without us having a real say in if that if that data is okay for for being used in that way. The other thing is um, the idea that people give up, for example, genetic data, and they and and they signed up for 23andMe or Ancestry.com. And, and they didn't know what they were signing up for. They thought that, that they were getting their ancestry DNA. Turns out that company went out and sold the data to a big pharma for $500 million. Um, and, and that may not be the worst thing in the world because if people get help, that's a good thing. But I would like to think that I, I, would, I should have a say in how my data gets used. Other things that bother me is there are multiple areas. The, the FDA is as large an organization as it is. Um, the FDA uh, and, and global authorities can only regulate things that, um, that they understand. So there are multiple areas where the FDA is going, is practicing what's known as enforcement discretion, which basically means you industry keep going, figure out what this means, we'll come back and we'll regulate it after the fact. But that means that in these initial stages, you've got people practicing in in a way that is um, that's problematic. Uh, and, and, and that results in, um, in, in multiple areas. And I don't want to uh, talk about that specifically because some of these are my clients, but the multiple areas where the FDA basically will say, we're, this is an unregulated market. We aren't regulating it right now, which means that products that have not been vetted are coming up to the market. On the other hand, I also have issues with the FDA over-regulating. So Underregulating is a problem. There's an issue with overregulating, where the FDA says we don't like it, and there's, there's a court case where the court basically came out and I and I quote: "The FDA places too high a value on its own importance." So it's it's very interesting to me to see the FDA dealing with both sides of the equation. I think the FDA, unlike a lot of private organizations, which, which I can't always say this about, and I think people in general. Uh, intend to do good, but um, but the profit motive does have a way of skewing what good looks like. Um, but I, I think that the FDA doesn't have that profit motive. They do intend to do good, but I think that 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 does come back to bite them as well. So and and so I think that there are loads of these issues, and as we get into these areas of um, of VR and AR. Uh, so I'm talking about virtual reality and augmented reality. I start talking about blockchain, talk about privacy. And as tech and health start coming together, which they already have started coming together, I think we're gonna see offshoots that become more and more concerning. And it's important that in some ways we have a handle on what we're doing because it feels a little bit like, like we're creating our own Frankenstein's monster and, and we don't have a clear idea of what the implications of it might be. Okay, there's loads of really interesting things to pick up on there. Let's start with, you mentioned VR and AR. Could you just talk us through a little bit more about how, it's, it's not just a matter of technology, like how, how health and things like that come into this? Sure, Let, let's say a couple of different things, right? There are people who are talking about using VR and AR, for example, uh, to, have, uh, to have meetings with your physicians. 
And, and that sounds great as a concept, but um, are there privacy implications? Who owns the data when you go onto an AR platform or a VR platform? Yes, convenience is key, but is it the same thing when the doctor's not, not really seeing you? Does the platform, does Facebook, for example, own your health data because you put it onto their platform? That becomes a huge issue. Um, the, what happens if something gets misdiagnosed? Does the doctor necessarily have to be, uh, as, as you start getting to telehealth and augment that with either augmented reality or, or virtual reality, how do you know that the, that the physician taking care of you is, is, from the, is from a country that you would trust the physicians from? I mean, I, I know of countries where physicians don't have the same standards of care as, as they might in the US or in the UK, for example. So those are concerns you start having to deal with. So licensing and, uh, and then you start thinking a little bit about, okay, so how are these physicians chosen? Does, uh, I mean, there are different models to this, right? There's one model that might be a physician opens up his, his or her own practice online. But there's a second model where, for example, a Facebook may decide these are our vetted physicians. Well, the moment you start doing that, you have its own implications because now who decide, who made Facebook God? So each of these has their own implications, their own considerations. I hadn't thought about how this applies to healthcare, but it's amazing how things like the metaverse, it gives, it puts so much power in the hands of companies like Facebook. And you can see Facebook being under some kind of obligation to properly regulate doctors, mm-hmm. for example, which is just, just mind-blowing. It's a social media company. Or you can see them taking a cut from having a, an appointment on, on their platform. You can see Facebook Correct. profiting from people's healthcare. The uh, the British person in me is quite upset by the idea of them <laughs> not having universal healthcare to start with, but that's that's huge. It's a social media company, it's, and it's taking on this immense role in public life. Correct. Correct. And is is that the world we want to live in? If so, why? If not, why? I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying, have we considered the ramifications of them? What, what do you think about that kind of world? Should we be going there? <laughs> uh, you're, asking, you're asking a lawyer to answer a question. The answer is always it depends. Um, I, 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 will, I will tell you that there are multiple considerations. And I think that uh, for me, some of the considerations that, that you have to consider, obviously, are things like convenience. Uh, during COVID, uh, people couldn't go, go to the doctor's office. People couldn't go to uh, the hospital having access to a VR, AR system, having access to telehealth was a game changer. Uh, and and that's, why, that's why meeting people on, um, online using telehealth platforms has become so meaningful. I mean, I, I theoretically, I'm going to be meeting my doctor in a couple of days online. So, so is, is, a, is VR really a step too far? Maybe, maybe not. Um, do I have a problem giving uh, a cut, if you will, to uh, the, the various telehealth companies? Maybe not. So then why is Facebook so different? So those are the questions start getting into. So yes, uh, Facebook had one goal and, and it's, it's morphing, but is, is this really, is that really any different from Google starting as a search agency and now having Alphabet and having Verily, uh, which does health? So it, it, it's all just a matter of perspective as I see it. Is, did, I, did I not answer your, your question properly? 
No, I think that was a fair answer to the question. I think it was a it was quite a hard question. Um, and do you think there's there's obviously like different levels of where we go with this? I mean, you can see benefits to having online calls with your doctor, but does it need to be in virtual reality or could it just be, say, a Zoom call or a, a FaceTime call, which Facebook doesn't control? Sure. So is your is your issue then with Facebook controlling it or is it with the AR VR feature of it? That's a good question. Um, I suppose from, from my perspective, it's it's a concern about the amount of control that one company has. Um, but then again, if you run everything through the same Zoom or whatever, then there's it's not exactly. a comparable <laughs> level of control, but there is still a quite a high degree of, of power given to them. And, 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 and you're making an assumption that's not accurate, which is in the healthcare world, that there aren't uh, organizations that have that, that level of control. Uh, for example, in, in healthcare in the US, there is an EMR system called Epic. It controls something like 50, 60% of the market. Everything, everyone use, and, and it's growing. Everyone who knows everyone is using Epic. So Epic is the Google of health. So is that really so different? The difference is Google at least is beholden to public shareholders. Epic is not. Epic's privately owned. So how is that really that different? You're making me think. It's usually me asking the questions. But... <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess you could make the argument that having Facebook in a uh, in a healthcare system which is already quite monopolized, I mean, it's almost like a counterweight to it. Potentially, you could make that argument. I, I would argue that P, there's significant enough distrust in Facebook that that they aren't they may not make enough headway and they may come out of it i mean there are multiple examples of that like uh, a couple of years ago for example um amazon bought pill pack and the idea was they're going to change the pharmacy world i don't think there's been a significant enough change and this was four or five years ago uh, a couple a couple of years ago there was haven where uh jp morgan um, I'm, I'm blanking, and two other huge, huge companies, I think Berkshire Hathaway and, and another one, uh, came together and, and those companies are worth trillions of dollars. And we thought they're going to change healthcare. They realized healthcare cannot be changed as easily as they thought. They got out of the system. So I think the issue is not um, whether Facebook will be a good counterbalance. The real question is, will Facebook even make a dent? And that's the question you, you might land up facing. Do, do the people already in the system control the system too much? Is there a monopoly already in place that cannot be disrupted? Okay. And then it's depending how, depending what level of complexity they're going for in terms of VR or AR, it's possible they could create their own system, right? Rather than relying on Facebook or some other company to make it. Correct. So right now, one of the big questions you're dealing with is, Facebook or, or Meta, as they call themselves now, is, is suggesting that they're going to have one metaverse. Everyone's talking about creating their own version of a metaverse. So if that's true, you've got these, these pocket universes, if you will, and everyone knows that that cannot exist for too long. At some point, they're going to start coalescing uh, or interacting in some way. That's basically creating a second internet. The question is, which companies will survive that and which companies won't? And, and will, sorry. go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. 
Um, could you just explain a bit more about why you think those would end up uh, combining to some degree? Well, think of it this way, right? Um, in the 1970s, we all had our own computers uh, and, and each of them, um, each of us decided that a, one computer is good, 10 computers is better. And, and that's how you, you started the internet. You, you had people messaging each other. Then that communication, that connection was where the value was. Um, you, you then in the 1990s, you had um, one computer set up with Windows and turned out that the, the reason, at least for me, that, that Windows became more dominant than Apple was Windows played well with others. Windows said, we want other um, software developers to work on our system, while Apple said, we'll create our own system. So mm -hmm. the ability to play with others has become critical. I mean, you, you saw that again in social media. It became more and more important for social media companies to enable interaction and engagement across platforms. Um, so, so you've got Facebook where you can now interact on Instagram and on WhatsApp, um, and they start buying each other. It's a different discussion, but that's, that's part of the process. So the interaction and interactivity is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. You, it's going to be difficult to convince someone that I can go to um, Pfizer.com on the Facebook metaverse, but someone else controls it on, um, on the Amazon metaverse. So at some point, you're going to have to decide, just like on the internet, that Amazon that, that Pfizer.com is the same, whatever metaverse you get into, which means that they have to connect in some way. Yeah. That's or a, or feel free to disagree with me, but yeah. No, I, I, think, I think part of the reason you got that with social media is because of the, that you want it to be convenient to switch between them, right? You want to be able to post on Instagram and also stick it on Facebook. Exactly. I'm not sure how that, Convenience applies that directly to um, the metaverse. I would say it's that multiplied by a thousand, honestly. I mean, I want to be able to get onto my, uh, my how should I put this? Go, go to my doctor's uh, virtual office and, and, and get in there, solve, uh, get diagnosed, but then directly go to the pharmacy. And, and in, in the U.S., we have CVS or we have Walgreens or we have Rite Aid. Why do I need to now potentially change metaverses to access my pharmacy? Why can't they all be in the same metaverse? And I think that, that ease, that, that uh, ease of connecting across all the different things that affect my life is what the beauty of uh, connectedness is. It's the beauty of social media. It's the beauty of interactivity. Mm -hmm. oh, sorry, uh, interaction, if you will. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm phrasing that properly. No, no, that, that makes complete sense. So I just wanted to pick up on another thing you said. You said that some of the issues we have with technology are created by design and some of them have unforeseen consequences. Let's start with the design ones. What, I know you, you can't go into too many details, but what kind of thing did you have in mind there? I mean, I gave an example of the issues created by design. I mean, for example, one of the I'll, I'll give you two that that pop pop up and uh, that are routinely bashed online. So I can I can at least mention them. Um, one is, for example, in the U.S., um, food supplements are unregulated. So you so you get these ads in the U.S. where um, you'll get um, someone claiming that um, these sexual enhancement pills, if you will, 
they're, they're not regulated as drugs, they're regulated as foods. And, and the result of that is there people are taking what they perceive to be medication, not realizing it's regulated as food. And then there are potential issues with that. There's an, an entire industry, the cosmetics industry in the US, for example, uh, this is a separate issue, by the way, the cosmetics industry in the US is, is incredibly unregulated. It's so unregulated that the cosmetics industry is going to the FDA going, I, we need you to regulate us. That's how unregulated it is. So that is by design. And, and that's just a few of them. I, I can name literally about 15 more without thinking too hard. So that's, and, and the reason it's unregulated by design is because legislators are uh, within those states are trying to make sure that those industries don't get shut down by overregulation. But that also impacts patients across the country. And that, that's a problem. Oh, American healthcare blows my mind. Um, <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit about unforeseen consequences then. What did you have in mind there? Well, we, we talked a little bit about that as well. So for example, um, if, if I uh, go in uh, and I'm doing 23andMe or I'm doing um, um, Ancestry.com and I'm going, oh, I want to know who my great-grandfather was. And that's how you pitch this product to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I give you my DNA. All I'm hoping to get out of that transaction is who was my grandfather. And I want you to connect that stuff for me. However, the company turns around and then sells it, sells that data that they got, sells that genetic data. And no one regulated that because they, they weren't looking at what the issue was. So the, that's an unforeseen consequence. Of, so people are regulating potentially, and, and they didn't, just to be clear, but you could have been regulating um, pers- personal privacy of people who are dead. And that might have been done with the intention of, of so that you don't find out who your great grandfather is, um, and and for whatever reason. But mm-hmm. um, but the truth was they were trying to go, they were going to go sell that data to pharmaceutical companies. I think that's an unforeseen consequence of the results. I mean, I'll give you another one. Um, we we talked about uh, genetic manipulation. What do we really understand enough about genetic manipulation to be able to say? We should do it and shouldn't do it. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. We're all going to be the beneficiaries of it, but we're going to go through a lot of things we don't understand. We're, we're in the early, super early phases of genetic manipulation. So, um, and I, when I say that, I'm, I'm being facetious. I mean, in many, many ways, we've been doing that for decades, but we're reaching more complex versions of it. Um, and that's the general point I'm making. So, so keep, whether we're talking about pure biopharma related uh, unforeseen consequences or pure tech meets biopharma related uh, consequences, they all have their own implications. They have their own considerations and unforeseen mm-hmm. consequences. And just leading on for that, I mean, you said the FDA obviously can only regulate things that they understand properly. Mm-hmm. Is there anything they could do preemptively or anything like that that seems reasonable that they could try to mitigate the harms associated with unforeseen consequences? Not especially. Generally speaking, it's not a good idea to do that. And the reason you don't want to do that is because you, you land up stopping people from developing things that they may have developed that, that use, again, un, unforeseen consequences, right? You may land up saying, 
we don't want you to do X. Turns out there was a safe way to do X and turns out you now push people to do Y, that's even worse. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to go do everything you wanna do and then we'll tell you which of those different options don't actually work because now we know what you're actually trying to do and we've given you enough time to develop your ideas. And, and now we know what the, what the ramifications of those ideas are. So as a concept, it sounds like a great thing to sort of preemptively say, no, you can't do that. But at a practical level, it's often easier or better to go, let's see what you can do before we start stopping you. I mean, I'll give you an example. Like in the EU, you guys just came out with um, your own white paper on artificial intelligence, which sounds great in concept. Um, but it, it's one perspective and um, it's diametrically opposite, for example, to what China's already talking about. So there's a whole discussion on privacy, GDPR, AI uh, in, the, in the use of surveillance. But what are the, and that's what the white paper is um, in, in the EU. The question is, what does the word, does the word, does the use of the word surveillance land up applying to uh, observational studies. And again, I haven't looked into this question, so I'm sort of talking off the top of my head. But, um, but the question is, if you're doing an observational study where you're looking at 50,000 patients across four countries, um, is that still considered to be surveillance? If so, is it regulated? Do we have issues with AI, regula AI regulations when you weren't even contemplating that? And mm -hmm. what are the ramifications thereof? So putting out rules and regs without fully understanding and considering the, the implications could be premature, mm -hmm. even though they, they come from a good place. So you used the term genetic manipulation uh, a few uh -huh. minutes ago, uh -huh. which I think will have a lot of people kind of, it's going to raise a few eyebrows. Does mm -hmm. that, do you see that as a like kind of game changer. I mean, we're talking obviously about technologies like uh, CRISPR and things like that, which have emerged sure. in the last couple of years. Do you see that as a big, a big deal that we should be worried about? <laughs> uh, well, I, let, let's be clear. There, there's a lot of hysteria around genetic manipulation, but we we'll all let, let's start from something a little bit earlier. For example, um, insulin is as is produced now is primarily a result of genetic manipulation so we don't have a problem with insulin that comes from genetic manipulation so is crispr really that far off and and i don't know the answer to that question um but there there is a point at which you start talking about human cloning which is another mm -hmm. form of genetic manipulation and you go have we gone too far but I don't know what that line is. Um, and, and what happens when you go from cloning and CRISPR to eugenics and saying we want to create the perfect human? Uh, and there were, there were movements in the US, there were movements in Germany that, that were all trying to create. I, I don't know if the, the UK had its own movement, but I expect it did. Everyone had at some point in the early 1930s or whatever, some version of a, we want to create the, the perfect human. In fact, um, or the perfect specimen. Uh, I mean, Marvel's coming up with their own version of it, uh, it when we talk about Adam Warlock in the next version of Guardians of the Galaxy. So it's not a new concept and, uh, and genetic manipulation very much is going to play a role in that. Some of which is going to be very good, like insulin. Some of it may be iffy and some of it may be very, very bad. And, and, and 
whether it's iffy or very, very bad, is going to depend a lot on perspective. The, the thing that worries me about that, which links a lot to what we've been talking about, is that, the, is that if, if we can't regulate things that well in advance, then what we have is that the shift already starts. So something that might not have been acceptable becomes very gradually commonplace and then becomes more acceptable over time. So what regulators look at as being like very ethically problematic is Mm -hmm. based on our own perspectives now. But if something were to start to become more popular, Mm -hmm. then that starts to become more socially acceptable just because more people are doing it. And then we decide- why is that a bad thing? Well, it just might be that that's, that's the done thing, which is the reason that people are doing it, rather than that, like, previously we would have agreed with that. I'm, I'm, I'm conceding your, your point's accurate. What, what I'm asking, though, is there are two types of ethics, right? There's, there's one that says that things are intrinsically good or bad. And then there's another type of ethics. And, and again, there, there are multiple types, but I'm just sort of picking on it. Um, overall and there's another type that says that society moves and changes and evolves and mm-hmm. um and and that's okay so what you're describing is the shifting perspective and things that move and change and evolve so i guess mm-hmm. my question for you would be is it bad that as society changes as society evolves what they in- initially considered to be completely unacceptable is now acceptable or the converse. For example, um, the ancient Greeks thought that it's okay to have um, little boys be a part of their um, to have to have relationships with little boys. Uh, the, I'm talking super ancient Greeks. And then over time, society evolved and said, "No, that's not something we think is a good idea." It, we would consider that to be a good change. So why is it okay to have certain changes that we now deem good to be okay? but other changes that we now deem bad, uh, now deem good to not be okay anymore. Does that make sense? I don't know if I- I No, no, that that makes perfect sense. And and I agree with you in principle that it's not necessarily, those kinds of changes aren't necessarily wrong. Where that concerns me is where those kinds of changes can be driven by companies that have a very, very complex understanding of our psychology and have worked mm-hmm. out how to game it, shall we say? Sure. So that that's that's not a kind of anything you could call an organic process. That that's driven by companies and a profit motive. So so your issues with the profit motive again, not so much with the actual result of it. It's it's not that the profit motive is inherently wrong, but it's mm-hmm. that if if that's all that you care about, then mm-hmm. you don't particularly care about the other consequences, which might also be bad. That that's fair, but the U.S. Supreme Court came out a long time ago and talked about what, what they refer to as the marketplace of ideas, mm-hmm. and the, the idea there was instead of so the way the the EU generally cares about privacy is how the U.S. generally cares about free speech, uh, in that mm-hmm. it's it's very it's, it's a core element of of society. In the same way, and and again, the, we we've seen movements away from that but ignoring that uh for the second for the purpose of this conversation the idea that one company cares about this this type of goal 
would also suggest that there are other companies that would not care to have that goal, in which case mm-hmm. there is a competition of ideas in the marketplace of ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and people are bobbing and weaving and choosing whether they want to be part of that. I'll give you a really good example of that. Um, people conceptually said, we like the idea of having um, these digital assistants. And mm-hmm. everyone was a fan of it. One of the, so, so you, you first had Amazon come out with their version, then you had Apple come out with theirs and you had Google come out with theirs. And the latest entrance, en, entrant that um, we can think of with the big companies is Portal from Facebook. And the truth is that Portal really hasn't taken off in the same way as everyone else has because people came out and said, we don't trust you, Facebook. So it's not so much that we don't like digital assistants, we just don't like you. So in the same way, in the marketplace of ideas, it's the marketplace if, uh, chooses which ideas should survive and from whom. So isn't that the same thing? Letting society choose. Unfortunately, we had to stop the recording there due to technical issues. But just to reply to what Darshan said, personally, I'm not convinced by an argument about society choosing its values when there's a context as we have now where huge companies have such a good understanding of our psychology that I'm not convinced that you can say the choices that are made on their platform are genuinely free choices. I think everyone would probably accept that a choice made by someone who is highly addicted to something is not a free choice. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have genuine free choice. But I would argue that because of the way Facebook understands, not just Facebook, but other companies as well, understand how our psychology works with dopamine and things like that. It's not for most people as far as addiction, but it's certainly not quite on the free choice end either. We're somewhere in the middle in this grey area between them. And that's something that concerns me and something that I'm trying to think about in terms of is there a better way to to draw that line and to think about this? Because I'm not convinced that our concepts of either free choice or not free choice are particularly well equipped to deal with these changing realities. Thanks for listening to another episode of Ethics for a Changing World. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to leave a like and a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe to us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and also share the show on social media. We have lots of other shows coming out and which we've already recorded, which you can have a listen to. You can follow us on Twitter at Ethics Tech Pod or on Instagram at Ethics for a Changing World for more content, including a tech explainers and tech ethics roundup. So what's been going on in the world of tech regulation and in terms of new technology. Thanks for listening and I'll see you again next time.